Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The land grab is on. There's been a ton of deal activity in the healthcare market in just the first three months of this year. On today's episode, we talked to GIST Healthcare co-founders Chaz Rhodes and Lisa Belomovich about what this means for the broader market as we look to a post-pandemic world. It's Monday, March 22nd, and I'm Alex Olkin with GIST Healthcare Daily, where you get the headlines in health business and policy news in under 10 minutes. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review. It helps other listeners find the show. As hospitals have started to come out of the immediate COVID crisis mode this year, there's been a lot of deals. In the past few months, there has been news of telehealth company mergers, insurers acquiring providers, and other healthcare startups getting tons of investor cash, and some are even going public. Amidst all of this, we're also seeing renewed interest in health system mergers and acquisitions, like Lifespan and Care New England and Rhode Island announced plans to merge. To talk about how all of this activity is changing the healthcare market, I spoke with GIST Healthcare co-founders Chaz Rhodes and Lisa Belomovich. Chaz, let's first start with hospital systems, who have been in crisis mode for much of 2020. Are you expecting these mergers to continue and pick up pace this year? And do you think it's the COVID shock that's driving hospitals and health systems to look for safety in size? I think that's part of it. Uh, I think, you know, there, I think there is a growing sense that if we're going to have to go through this kind of crisis again, we're going to need a little more flexibility. And that means financial stability. And um, and, you know, there's also been a, a fairly significant downward uh, shock just in terms of volumes for a lot of hospitals. And so, you know, whenever you have that kind of a situation, it's not surprising that thoughts turn to scale and consolidation and that sort of thing. It feels like there are two different kinds of health system uh, deals that are picking up pace under the surface. Uh, one is the distressed organization who you know, has trouble uh, has had trouble weathering the pandemic uh, and you know really is looking for a port in the storm. You know that would be standalone hospitals, smaller health systems. And then there are organizations that have come out of 2020 in a relatively strong position, probably better than they would have expected if we were talking last spring. And they see themselves in a position of strategic opportunity uh, where they can partner with new organizations, develop new capabilities, uh, and take advantage of this moment to uh, change what they're offering to the market. 
Now to some other recent headline-making deals. In February, Cigna announced it's acquiring telehealth company MD Live, and HCA Healthcare announced a deal with Brookdale Senior Living for the majority ownership in its home health business. What do you guys think these deals signal about where the market is heading? I mean, I think coming into COVID, there was a trend toward vertical integration and a lot of the payer organizations in particular looking to move their way more into care delivery. I think one of the things that we learned in COVID is that uh, there's actually a fairly big appetite among consumers for virtual care and for engaging with healthcare, uh, you know, not in person. And that had to happen during COVID. I think that a lot of those payer organizations view that as an opportunity to build tighter relationships with their members, um, which is always important for insurance companies because uh, one of the success factors is to reduce churn as much as possible in the enrollee population. And so this is a way for them to spend some of the cash that they've banked uh, across the pandemic and edge their way even further uh, into home-based care, virtual care, Uh, some of these safer, less intensive uh, care delivery methodologies that are also lower cost. Yes, digital um, health and home-based care are definitely uh, on the same spectrum. Uh, Shifting care away from established facilities, whether that's a doctor's office or a hospital. And you know, not only have consumers opened to telemedicine during the pandemic, our homes have become the centers of our lives. And you know the value proposition of bringing more care into my home, whether it's just the ability to talk to my doctor or even for someone who's ill to not have to be admitted to a hospital or long-term care facility and have that hospital level care at home uh, is hugely valuable in a way that I don't think it would have even been considered by most of us before the pandemic. And you know we are seeing parts of the industry of all different stripes making big bets here that this is going to continue. Another part of what's happened is that in the investor community, there's a lot of appetite for investing in healthcare right now and a lot of capital to be deployed. And that capital has just built up over, you know, over the past year. I think people might've been somewhat skittish last year in the investment community to fund new ventures, just given all the uncertainty in the environment. But now, that it's clearer, you know, that we're coming out of the pandemic, that there's a recovery ahead. In fact, it looks like the economy is going to be, you know, going gangbusters by the second half of the year. I think investors are keen to to jump in, and that's creating a lot of momentum around some of the kind of new, disruptive, um, innovative uh, companies that are, again, trying to edge into this, uh, into edge into the space. You have both questioned the viability of the standalone telehealth business. I read that the acquisitions of telehealth in recent months aren't so much about the technology, but about a market share play. Would you agree? This is part about that gray space, which, uh, you know, so many different entities moving toward platform businesses. I think it's hard to differentiate based on the technology alone. You know, experience goes a long way, but ultimately the most lasting solutions are going to be ones that connect digital health to other elements of my healthcare needs in the care experience. The telemedicine companies come at it, the the ones who are pure telemedicine companies, right, who aren't, you know, pre-existing delivery organizations, 
you know, I sort of think of them as uh, there's this age old tension between content players and network players, right? And so um, are you a content provider? Like, do you make shows or are you a network provider? And so you own the cable company and you own the wires and so forth. And I think the telemedicine, the pure play telemedicine companies, you know, are more in the latter camp than the former camp. So, you know, I think there are interesting companies that I would think of as, to use a different analogy, shopping cart companies. That's fine. But at some part, point, you have to have the groceries to put in the shopping cart. And that's the care delivery. And so uh, there is a natural uh, marriage at some point that's going to happen, uh, I think, between the content of clinical care and the distribution channel of, of clinical care. And now, whether that's orchestrated by the insurance companies who, you know, buy their way back into the value chain, or whether that's the, uh, you know, health systems and physician organizations that buy their way up the value chain, we'll see how that plays out. So looking ahead, how much will the move to home-based care, if it continues at the same pace, impact hospitals' underlying business model, where they make money with heads and beds? Heads and beds at home aren't quite the same. In your work with health system executives, are you hearing concern about this shift, given that most of the country is still paid fee-for-service? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the whole, and this is the whole challenge with, with uh, value-based care and accountable care and, you know, all of these payment reforms that we've been talking about for the last 10 years. I mean, the fundamental business model of a hospital, which is a fixed cost business, is, uh, you know, you've got to fill up that asset. It's like a hotel or a, an airplane, right? Um, you're not making as much money if you haven't filled up all of the beds. Um, and so until you change the the business model so that you're not purely rewarding people on filling up beds, you've got a problem. And, um, and, you know, as much as you try to move stuff into lower cost settings by providing, you know, shared savings incentives or bonus payments to hospitals to, you know, to move their patients into home-based settings or telemedicine visits or whatever it is, um, that's creating a tension in the underlying business model, unless the reimbursement system changes wholesale to one that rewards, uh, you know, hospitals for keeping patients out of hospitals, uh, which is a, a strange sort of reimbursement model, um, you're always going to have that tension. Yeah, the tension is not new, but the changes of last year have made it all seem much more real and imminent uh, than it was before the pandemic. If you think about the regulatory changes that allow uh, providers to practice across state lines, changes in scope of practice, uh, new reimbursement for care delivered in the home and alternative settings. You know, these provide a foundation for solutions like hospital at home to grow much more quickly than they would have uh, prior to uh, COVID. So how are hospitals already making strategic moves? And if so, what are they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is the main thing that's driving hospitals uh, toward the insurance business and toward thinking about things like, can we start our own Medicare Advantage plan or can we uh, so, you know, partner with an insurance company somehow to climb into the premium dollar so that we're less exposed to these tensions and the pressures of, of you know, having to fill the beds and we can make a different kind of strategic decision. I think that's absolutely that gray space that we talked about uh, is not just, you know, it's not just payers pushing into the provider space, it's also providers trying to climb into the payer space for exactly the same reason, because putting the two together creates a different set of 
incentives that allows you to solve the healthcare delivery problem in a, in a better way. There's a real fear and danger of health systems and hospitals being commoditized. If a health plan owns primary care physicians, if they are able to manage the digital connection to care with consumers, then wow, that provides a lot of power to direct business to preferred partners or away from high cost settings uh, downstream, which is honest moment where most of the health system business lives. If they are going to climb up the chain, they need to do it soon. I'm curious to get your take on the smaller, mainly Medicare Advantage and individual market insurers going public this year, like Oscar, Clover, and Alignment. Do you expect that they'll get gobbled up by larger payers? Uh, you know, there has been a ton of buzz around insurance startups, you know, whether it's Clover or Oscar. An honest moment, uh, you know, although they are bringing forth some very innovative models, you know, largely they still have a long way to go to hit the level of scale that would put them anywhere near, you know, say the biggest players in the Medicare Advantage market, which continues to be dominated by the large national insurers. So, you know, if I if I had to place a bet, I would say either they'll continue to grow, but their novel capabilities will probably be very valuable inside a traditional insurance company. Scale matters, especially matters in the insurance business. You know, these new insurance startups are relatively subscale compared to the large national players and even the blues plans. Um, I do think we make a mistake by lumping them all into one category. They're different. They bring different things to the table. Uh, some of them are more technology oriented. Some of them are more focused on the care model and, you know, built around uh, certain patient populations. And so, you know, I think what's happening is they're all identifying gaps in the traditional insurance model and the, and the care delivery model. And I think it again goes back to this gray space between payers and providers and some of these uh, new innovators, uh, tr you know, trying to bridge that gap by uh, targeting specific angles into, um, into patient populations. I think it'd be very interesting to watch what happens to some of these companies over time as they, as they uh, live their lives as public companies and, and the market requires them to actually you know, become profitable, generate a return, uh, generate growth. We'll see uh, where that goes. Switching gears to physicians, when the pandemic hit last winter and spring, you guys expected that there would be a wave of physician acquisitions because of COVID financial challenges. We saw Optum announce it's acquiring Boston-based 715 doctor practice Atrius Health. But do you think the wave has hit yet? You know, it's interesting when you look back over the past year, you know, again, I think if we were talking in the spring or summer, we would have expected there to be many more doctors knocking on the door of health systems and insurance companies looking for a partner. But the PPP loans for small and mid-sized businesses really did their job and stabilized practice, uh, you know, over the full year. We are definitely seeing the market start to heat up. Uh, and I think there's a couple of things underneath that. One, you know, similar to uh, health system merger activity, I think doctors are looking back over the past year and saying, wow, if I have to do this again, maybe you know, I don't want to be alone and I'm questioning the viability of my independent practice. But there were a whole host of 
market forces that were already pushing physician practices, small and large, toward aligning with someone bigger. You know, think about the generational transition of baby boomer owners who are now looking to retire and exit the practice. You know, so you have that coming together with the stress that COVID brought to doctors across the country. And I think it's really shaping up to set this year up for much more activity than we saw last year. I think we'll see it at a, several different levels. You know, honest moment, there aren't many independent groups of the size and scale of Atreus left in the country, but those that are out there are going to be prime targets uh, for physician aggregators like Optum, and they'll be able to command a very impressive premium. At the other end of the spectrum, you know, there is a huge amount of investor activity that has re-entered the market to roll up smaller practices, specialty practices, and we're starting to hear tons of chatter, you know, that in some ways is bringing me back to conversations that we had in, say, 2005. You know, do I need to joint venture with my orthopedic surgeons because they're getting a knock on the door from an investment firm who, you know, wants to help them build an ambulatory surgery center? Uh, the market's going to get really hot. And I think Optum is a special case, too, right? I mean, it's part of America's largest health insurance company, largest healthcare company in the country. Optum, uh, which is a division of United Health Group, now employs uh, you know, five to six percent of all physicians in the country. That's a big deal. That's a huge story. You know, I think Optum increasingly is sort of the thing that aid American healthcare. The challenge, or the I think the the phenomenon to watch is that United Health Group, as a publicly traded insurance company, uh, the, whose growth is very much fueled by acquisition in the Optum division, uh, is has got sort of a logic of its own at this point. And so they just have to look for bigger and bigger things to buy in order to, to drive that model and satisfy market expectations for growth. Um, and that creates a, a couple of challenges. One is, as Lisa points out, there are fewer and fewer big things to buy. And so if the strategy is going to be to continue to acquire physicians, probably somebody else has to do the spade work of rolling those practices up before they're big enough for Optum to spend time on those acquisitions. And that's where the private equity roll-ups come in. Um, and then the other is, you know, eventually there's, you have to do something with all these things that you acquire, right? You've bought all of these assets uh, in the care delivery space, and now you bought the problem that vexes American healthcare, which is how do you make practice actually result in value? I think that there's no magic to that. It's no easier for Optum to integrate physician practices than it has been for independent groups or for health systems. Uh, and so at some point, there is some really hard work ahead for that organization to figure out how do you turn all of these acquisitions into something that can actually transform American healthcare. As we talk about Optum's vertical integration and employing tens of thousands of physicians, there have been calls for antitrust scrutiny. Just last week, the American Hospital Association urged the FTC to take a closer look at the insurer's plan to acquire health data company Change Healthcare. Do you expect antitrust scrutiny of United Health Group and others to intensify? This will be important to watch as we see how the new team at the FTC is built. If you think about what Optum is assembling, you know, they're pulling together now the nation's largest employer of docs, uh, owners of one of the country's largest ambulatory surgery center chains, the nation's largest operator of urgent care clinics, 
uh, and they're continuing to add on specialty care clinics in addition to primary care, you know, it starts to raise the question that when we're thinking about healthcare market dominance and competition, what are we talking about when we say market share? Market share of what? Uh, the way that regulators have looked at uh, anti-competitive behavior has largely been very traditionally centered around hospital market share, inpatient market dominance. And I think we're going to see a push to consider market share more broadly. Who is controlling the healthcare spend or healthcare share of wallet of a consumer in a particular market? Vertical. Uh, consolidation has always been much, much harder from an antitrust perspective to enforce than horizontal consolidation. It's, it's easy to measure you know, market concentration in horizontal markets, but uh, it goes back to that co- you know, content versus network question, market share of what, as Lisa said. So uh, they own the wires and they own the, and they own the shows. Um, now, you know, now think back to the last big vertical integration case that the government tried to bring in antitrust was AT&T Time Warner, that didn't go anywhere. Um, and because it's really hard to make the case that that's, uh, you know, that, uh, that it's anti-competitive. It's the same challenge that uh, the government's gonna face when they go after the big tech companies, whether it's Amazon, Facebook, Google, whatever it is, these are platform businesses uh, that are in, have their fingers in a lot of different pies. Um, that's where healthcare is going as well there's probably a, a gap between what's happening in the market and kind of the theory and practice of uh, antitrust enforcement that's going to have to catch up to it. That was Chaz Rhodes and Lisa Belamovich, co-founders of GIST Healthcare. Thanks for listening to GIST Healthcare Daily. I'm Alex Olkin. You can check out more insights on healthcare business and policy news on JustHealthcare.com. Just Healthcare Daily is an independent production of Just Healthcare. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.